Our preacher this morning is no stranger to Bethesda Church. In fact, uh, Bill Ehlers served as Bethesda's senior pastor for 19 years, from 1987 to 2006, and then he stayed on as interim pastor to make it an even 20 uh, between uh, 2006 and 2007 uh, when my family and I arrived. And uh, just a, a, a bit of uh, background, Bill grew up in the Pittsburgh area, uh, so he grew up a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and as a Cubs fan, we get along okay. Uh, and uh, then he graduated from Penn State University, and you know, as a Notre Dame fan, we get along okay. Um, and uh, he also is a graduate from Denver Seminary, uh, and uh, he also is an American expat, as we are uh, now both American and Canadian citizenship. And so we're very glad that Bill is here with us, and look forward to, seeing, to hearing what the Lord would have us to hear this evening. The uh, scripture passage that I'm going to read is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You'll see it there on page 1114 uh, of your pew Bibles. And so let me read this. Since in your pew Bibles that connects with the first, the next, well, the last verse in chapter 12, we'll include that as well. Paul writing here to the church at Corinth by the Holy Spirit and by faith to us as well. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. May the Lord bless us by the reading of his word. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we ask you now to open our minds and our hearts, our ears to the truth and the life that are found in your word. And we also confess, Lord, that we know that Jesus Christ is the word made flesh, the greatest, the supreme expression of your word. And so it is him that we follow, and it is these words that show us how to live according to his character, his word, his spirit. We do pray for Bill now, uh, this morning, that he would speak truth and life to us by your spirit, and that you would allow us to hear him as we are hearing you. In Jesus' name, amen. The last time I was up here was uh, two months ago when I officiated at my wife's uh, memorial service. And we sang that song, um, 10,000 Reasons. So it brings back, uh, it's very touching to me to be back here uh, with you. And um, it's been a place where um, 
I've been able to kind of recover from that, and um, and just to be with you on Sunday mornings is a wonderful thing. Just to be here and meet new friends as well as uh, old friends, and uh, just enjoy the fellowship here for this past month. I've been very happy that um, uh, Mark offered me an opportunity to speak again. So, thank you, Mark. Been thinking a lot about um, heaven since that's our blessed hope. And um, I don't fully understand heaven. Uh, it's going to be too wonderful uh, for words. We, we only have some clues in the scripture as to what heaven will be like. And it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Everything will be perfect. I suppose when you play table games, uh, everybody will win. <laughs> so it's going to be just thoroughly amazing. So I, I can't understand all that very well. I mean, the, the transparent glass floors and the boundaries of heaven and the eternal radiance of the Lord there. So it's easier for me to think about heaven in terms of what it is not. It is not a place of sorrow or grief or regret And it's not a place of sin. <clears throat> All of our sins will be, that are here now on this earth, will be totally washed away in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Sometimes I dream about heaven. In fact, I had a dream last night, and Mark was in it. <clears throat> <laughs> I died, and I was... Uh, went to heaven and was standing there outside the gates of the city, all the pearly gates, you know, the whole thing. St. Peter was there. He welcomed me and uh, ushered me in. Come on, I'm going to give you a tour, he said. So he brought me into this, this huge room, like the entrance portal to heaven. And uh, it was just absolutely vast and stunning. And I saw on the the walls and the ceiling of this room, all these things that look like clocks. And um, I said, what are all these clocks doing here in this room? What do they mean? I thought time was endless uh, at this point. Time shall be no more. Well, St. Peter corrected me. He says, those aren't clocks. Those are sin meters. And so... Uh, we have one for every person who's a Christian still on earth and hasn't made it up here yet. And, and there's one for every person up there. And I says, really? Well, well, how do they work? Well, he says, well, every time a person sins, the clock goes around one full revolution. He says, well, Interesting. Then he got called away, and he left me alone for a little while there, so I had a chance to explore a little bit. So I says, well, this is really interesting. I'll have to just look at these clocks. So I have some friends still down there. So I, I, it was all in alphabetical order, so it made it rather easy for me. So, <laughs> so I found, um, I found the, the sin meter for Kate Creighton there under C, and uh, it was pretty boring. I stood there and watch, but there was no action there. Same thing with Ruth Rennie. There's nothing. So I just kept moving on. I thought, well, I wonder 
uh, Pastor Mark, what his uh, sin meter would look like. So I looked under W and went down the list, and, and where it, I was rather mystified, because where it should have been, it wasn't. So, so uh, try as I might, I couldn't find it. So when St. Peter came back, I said, look, I'm, this is very interesting. I'm looking for the sin meter for Pastor Mark Wilcoxon of Bethesda Church in Winnipeg. You can help me find it. So he looked on the wall, and he couldn't find it either. And so he, he says, listen, I'll go over and see if I can find it in my record book. He said, this huge book, all the Christians on earth still living. And he paged through that, and he got back to the W section. He says, oh, I can't. I know what happened, he says. We took Mark's clock, and we put it in the basement, and we use it. In the, in the furnace room, we use it for a fan. <laughs> Is that right, Shelley? Yeah. 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 Pretty close. Yeah. Good. Good. What the world needs most is to know Jesus because uh, his sacrifice on the cross and belief in him gives us redemption from our sin. The greatest need of the world is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and to be saved from our sin because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'd like to think of a different question, though, for us today. What is the greatest need from the church, for the church? Now, some people um, would be quick to um, give their two cents on that one, especially those who are not really part of the church. They would say, well, I can tell you what's wrong with the church right now. And you would just have to sit there and take that all, because some of it would be justified. But I pose this question not so much as a cynic, who sits in the grandstands watching the church from a distance, but I'm one who's been very much involved in the game itself. And so when we ask this question, what is wrong with the church, or what is the church's greatest need, to put it in a more positive sense, if I were to ask all of you, if this was a classroom, you probably would have your opinions on that as well. Someone say, might say, well, listen, we just need more prayer in the church. We just need to, to really be praying all the time together. And I think there's something commendable about that answer. Some might say, well, the need in the church is for people to know their Bibles better and to be able to um, live what they know because there's a lot of hypocrites out there and, you know, we don't want to be like them. We want to live what we believe. And there might be other people who would say, well, the need of the church is for better leaders and communicators, uh, those who can rise up above the noise and din of this present age and, and speak a clear word for God, and people would know it's directly from God. And other people might say, well, we just need uh, leaders and, and uh, 
those who know the direction that we need to go and, and can set a clear course and, and the rest of us will just follow that. And somebody else might say, well, you know what we need is, is uh, Christians who have had not only the head knowledge, but, but they're living it out in a vital and vibrant way out in society and, um, and they've had a wonderful spiritual experience with the Holy Spirit and, and uh, they are on fire for the Lord and their fervor is infectious and people are coming to Christ all around them because of that. You might have other opinions as well. So what's the church's greatest need? There would be some merit in all those things. And yet, I know of a church who had all those things. It had people who could be described as prophets. And when they spoke, people knew that they were hearing a word directly from God. They had people who were very schooled in the scriptures because they had some of the best teachers that the church has ever had. And they had uh, wonderful spiritual experiences. As far as I can tell, they had the authentic gift of tongues in the Bible. They were able to speak languages that they had never studied. And uh, they were able to use that to go out to unreached people groups and um, evangelize them for Christ on the mission field. And they had all those things. And yet, when Paul wrote to that church in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I suspect some of you knew that's where I was going, he said to them that you're missing something. While they should have been leading the league in performance, they were struggling to stay out of last place. And so, here at the... Um, end of chapter 12 he says now I want to show you the most excellent way and there it's there again in in uh, chapter 14 verse 1 follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts so We have here these two wonderful chapters on spiritual gifts, and, uh, and in between we have this magnificent chapter 13. Now, Paul was not one to downgrade spiritual gifts. He spends a lot of ink writing here in these two chapters about, um, excuse me, I've got to get this PowerPoint working, right? All right. He spends a lot of ink in these two chapters talking about spiritual gifts and the necessity of those in the church. And each one of us has been given at least one spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit, and it's our responsibility to identify those gifts, work in concert with the Spirit of God, and... And for the building up of the body of Christ, everyone is important. Those with 
lesser gifts as well as those with greater gifts. Each one is important. But while the, uh, the Corinthians valued spiritual gifts, Paul said there's something that you're missing. Above everything else, make love your aim. And so now he goes into this wonderful chapter 13 that Mark has been um, preaching on for the last month. Some might say, well, why are you preaching on this chapter? Mark's already um, opened this up for us so well. Um, I like to think that what Mark has done here, if we can say 1 Corinthians 13 is like a, a box, He's taken out all the uh, verses and all the elements from the box and he's held them up to us and he's unpacked them and, uh, and given insight as to what these all mean. And he's put them back in the box. And my role today is merely, now that he's done that, uh, just kind of wrap the box up and put a little bow on it. That's really all I'm doing today. So um, one critic, one literary critic, has described this chapter 13 as the noblest, finest, and deepest thing that Paul has ever written. So what we're going to do today is just, uh, well, just look at the first three verses. We don't have time to do um, everything else, and Mark's uh, already given that to you. But um, we want to we look at this in terms of what is the church's greatest need. So, in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What he's saying here is that apart from my service, uh, all my service amounts to nothing. Apart from love, all my service amounts to nothing. It really does. It amounts to a big zero. And, and so we look at that and uh, we see here that he is featuring the gift of tongues. That's what the Corinthian church seemed to value most. These sign gifts, these showy gifts, they were spectacular, they were amazing. And anybody who had that gift of tongues was like a celebrity within the church. Everybody was clamoring for that as well. Now here he imagines someone that had that authentic gift of tongues. And he had it like no one else ever had it before. He's saying uh, he spoke in all the languages of men. Now, I heard something uh, that Wycliffe Bible translators put out recently, and they said there's something like 6,000 different language groups in this world. And, of course, Wycliffe is working hard to get the last of those with a copy of the Scriptures. But this man could speak all those languages of earth. And what's more, he could speak uh, the language of angels, the language of heaven. There's some people in uh, Quebec who think that that language would be French. <laughs> And the church that I'm pastoring in the summer made up a lot of uh, Mennonite folks from southern Manitoba. And um, I think they believe that the language of heaven is low German. <laughs> I don't know what the language of angels is, but uh, this man could speak it. 
whatever it was. And, and uh, I mean, I've known some uh, people here who are very good with languages. Asif is here. And I remember when uh, I and many others were at the bottom of the escalator, and I think it was 1999 when your sons came over from Afghanistan, and Bethesda was sponsoring them, and Asif, uh, or, uh, Zubair and Omid. Now, Zubair, as we got to know him better and love him, we learned he was very good with languages. He could speak in at least five that I knew of. He could speak in uh, Dari and uh, Persian and Russian, some French, and uh, English. And the English kept getting better and better. Did he know any other languages besides that? Yeah? How about you? Do you know all five of those? No? <laughs> well, uh, wonderful. I was watching CBC TV news uh, this week, and they featured a young four-year-old boy, and Mensa has their eye on him because he is a genius. He already can speak four languages. Five, five languages at age four. You can look it up. That's amazing to me. I had heard of a person who could speak 32 languages, and he could write in about half of those. As far as I know, he never had a conversation with angels. But this man could speak them all. Paul's man here. Imagine what an asset that would be on the mission field. Because you know that uh, in missions, one of the big hurdles we have to face is coming, overcoming the language barriers, but uh, not with this man. When his uh, little Cessna came down and landed on the grass strip, he'd just jump out of that plane, and, and he'd gather a crowd around him, and he would speak with uh, the fluency and skill of an orator. And all these people would be amazed He's never been here before and studied our language. Obviously, he has the power of God, whoever God is. God speaks our language. And they would be coming to Christ by the hundreds. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If he went to Mission Fest uh, next weekend, all the people who uh, have exhibits there and booths, you know, representing mission organizations uh, that are trying to evangelize people all over the world would be on him right away. They'd all be trying to enlist him. Wycliffe Bible translators would say, you don't even need to raise support for us. We'll pay you. You come on with us. What an asset on the mission field. But Paul says, even if he could do all that, but didn't have love, what's it say? He is a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, no doubt the, uh, the gong that he's talking about is the kind that was used in Asian worship to call people to uh, worship, and uh, the priest of these religions would just uh, give that gong a whack, and it would, everybody would hear it in the community, and they would all come to attend the, the worship of their god. And the symbols that he was talking about here would have not been unfamiliar to those who came out of a Jewish background. In fact, let me read to you. 
Psalm 150. It's a short psalm, six verses. Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power, praise him for his surpassing greatness, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, praise him with, praise him with the harp and the lyre, praise him with tambourine and dancing, praise him with the strings and the flute, praise him with a clash of cymbals, praise him with resounding cymbals, and let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So in Hebrew worship, there was obviously a lot of uh, bumping and banging and clanging that went on, and, and this was typical, and, and people would have known that. But the problem is, and this is why Paul is putting this in a negative sense, that those instruments, the gong and the cymbal, are instruments of only one note. There's no music in them, like the instruments that we use here. And, uh, and all they're able to do is produce a loud and senseless din, apart from the context of an orchestra or band. On their own, they're just noisy instruments. Now, this past uh, Christmas was a little different for me and for our family uh, when it came to gifts for the grandchildren. So we had, um, well, my wife Betty always took care of that. I never had to think about that. And she'd be shopping for these gifts in July, you know, going to thrift stores, finding appropriate little gifts for the granddaughters and everything. And she would um, accumulate these over the course of the year. And then when uh, a few weeks before Christmas came, she'd dump them all out on the bed and, uh, and she would say, come and see what I got. And she was very proud of herself. And, uh, and my part in the whole thing was just to kind of help wrap them up and put a little bow on them. That's my role. But she did all the shopping. So this past Christmas, there was none of that. And so I thought, well, I could easily get a pass with my grandchildren and, you know, claim, you know, dire circumstances or something. And they probably would understand. But um, I uh, thought about it a bit and consulted with a few people and uh, managed to come up with some appropriate Christmas gifts for the kids. And and uh, the kids were thrilled, and their parents were commending me all over the place for doing this. So it worked out pretty well. But imagine that instead of what I got for them, I decided I'm going to get my grandchildren a Chinese gong and, and some uh, uh, John Philip Sousa marching band cymbals. And I'm going to wrap those up, and the kids are going to open them. And that's my gifts to my grandchildren. And wouldn't that have been a fun Christmas day? And I suppose uh, everybody would have managed to get through that Christmas day. Somehow the spirit of Christmas cheer covers all that confusion. But it would be the next morning when I think the problems would start. And those kids would come into your bedroom and, uh, you know, one would slap that gong and the other one would clash those cymbals and you'd just wake up like vibrating all over 
from head to toe. And I think that it wouldn't be long before those gifts mysteriously disappeared. And before too long, you'd be selling them for scrap metal, if you're the parent there. And that's because all that the gong and the cymbal are able to do is just create a, a loud and senseless din in a room. And that's what Paul's saying is these amazing gifts are outside the context of love. No matter how profound and magnificent these gifts are that we may have, if they're not done with love, it just makes a bunch of noise in the church. That's all it does. Well, he presses the argument uh, further in verse 2, and he says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. What he's going to say here is, apart from love, all my service not only amounts to nothing, but it makes me nothing. He says, I am nothing. Now, if the Corinthians valued the gift of uh, tongues, Paul himself, it's evident, valued the gift of prophecy. That was the big one for him. And you can see how he writes about that. Now, um, some of these gifts have a certain cringe factor to them in our modern evangelical world. I know that um, Mark uh, talked about some of these earlier. And he, there are some believers who, uh, some, some branches of evangelicalism that say, no, these gifts have ceased. We call them cessationists. Um, and Mark claimed that he himself was a cautious, what was the word you used? Continuous? He's a cautious continuationist. A cautious sensationalist, maybe. <laughs> and I, I would tend to be in that camp as well. So um, when we hear these words, though, we sometimes like, ugh. I don't know about this, you know, is this really for us today? Well, it might be good here, without going into a big definition of prophecy, just to see in the context of how Paul himself defined it. And you don't have to go very far, just go over to verse 3 of chapter 14. I don't have it on the screen, but it says, Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. To me, that's as concise a definition of prophecy as you're going to get. That can be done in the context of uh, preaching. It can be done in the context of a small group. It could be done in the context of a one-on-one, -on -one where you share some scripture for someone strengthening for their encouragement or for their comfort if they've suffered loss. If you do that, you then would be exercising this gift of prophecy. You say, well, that's, that puts it in a little different light. I don't have to be afraid of it then. Uh, maybe I can do that. He says, okay, uh, but not without love, or it makes you nothing. 
Now, if you have this gift of prophecy, uh, that's wonderful in the church. I think we would welcome that. But the person he's talking about here has this gift like nobody's ever had it before. This person can fathom all mysteries and knowledge. With this person, there is never a theological question. You come to her and uh, ask a question, you get a straight answer backed up by Scripture, and it's black and white, there's no gray, there's no equivocation like, well, on one hand, uh, you could say this, on the other hand, it's like this, but not with this person, it's clear, it's absolute. And you, you can't stump them on any question. They don't need Google to look anything up. They've got it right there. That would be pretty amazing to have somebody like that in the church, wouldn't you agree? Somebody, you'd probably flock to that class. You have all your questions answered. There'd be no doubt in their mind when they answer that it's coming straight from God. And you would know that too. Because that's how prophets worked. They spoke on behalf of God. And it was clear. The word was clear when it came. Oh, imagine what it'd be like to have somebody like that around. Um, never any conundrums. Everything is crystal clear. And furthermore, they have tremendous faith. Faith that can move mountains. And in Scripture, you know that uh, this whole thing of moving mountains that represents obstacles. Well, with this person, they've got tremendous confidence and faith. There is no obstacle too large for them to overcome. And uh, the obstacles just seem to melt out of the way, these mountains. And uh, what confidence this person has. These are the kind of people that found churches and and establish mission societies. Um, these are the kind of people that we write biographies about. And, and Paul's saying here that even if a person had that kind of gift of prophecy where they could like, do all that um, uh, to the extent that nobody else could, without love, it is nothing. You have nothing. You yourself are nothing. Now, I've known a lot of people who have had tremendous knowledge, but um, unfortunately, it's, it's locked up in their minds like the gold in Fort Knox. So when it comes to actually explaining things, if you ask them a question, um, all you get is this big theological dump of information that you can't really figure it out, and you go away more perplexed than ever. And uh, they got a great treasury of knowledge, but like it's, it's locked up in their heads like the gold in Fort Knox. And when it comes to really explaining it, they can't even make change for a loony. So, but not this person. They could, they could explain it clearly. They, they were able to communicate it well. And uh, knowledge and communication makes that person a compelling person to follow. And with this tremendous confidence and faith, there's no obstacles. What a leader this would be. 
and Paul's saying here, well, they may very well be missing something. And it would make them amount to nothing. Imagine that um, let's just say that you were able to um, have a $20 bill that you put in the offering plate on Sunday. We're on a cash system here, so no checks, no e-transfers, nothing like that. That's how my dad was. He never had a mortgage. He never wrote a check. He never had a charge card um, for everything that he bought, whether it was a gallon of milk or a load of lumber. It was cash. So imagine we're on that kind of a system here, and uh, you come in and you, you drop your $20 bill on the offering plate, along with other people. And on Monday, the counters count up your $20 bill and others, and they, make, they put it in the safe. And then later in the week, the treasurer of the church, uh, he's paying some bills here, and he has your $20 bill, and he uses it to pay part of one of our local missionaries' support. And, and that missionary takes that money, and he goes to buy groceries. And the grocer uses it to pay the rent on the building. And, and then uh, the landlord of the grocery store uses that $20 bill to um, buy some tools. And then uh, at the end of another week, that that hardware store owner takes your $20 bill and bundles it up with some more and takes it to the bank to make a deposit. And while the, the teller is counting out the money, they come to your $20 bill and they determine that it's counterfeit. Your $20 bill's gone all over the city of Winnipeg. It's, it's been used uh, as an offering to the Lord. It's been used to pay a missionary support, used to buy groceries, used to pay the rent, used to buy tools. But now, when it comes to the point where only true values count at the bank, it's determined to be worthless. And that's the way my gifts are if they are not done with love. No matter what our spiritual gifts are, if there is not the accompaniment of love along with them, then Paul's saying that those gifts amount, that you amount to a big fat zero. When it comes to God's evaluation of us, with whom true values count, I am nothing, he's saying. I say, hmm. That's something to think about. But then he goes on with this in verse 3. And he says, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So here he's saying that apart from love, all my service gains me nothing at the judgment seat of Christ, really. There will be no reward. 
And now, this person here is making great sacrifices. He's making sacrifices of his possessions. If I give all I have to the poor, and the, and the New American Standard Bible is a little bit more accurate on this. It says, if I give what I have to feed the poor. And that word feed there, it means literally morsel by morsel. So um, this person is not only, this is not just checkbook charity. This is involvement. And they're there not only supplying the food, but they're dispensing it morsel by morsel. The word was used in the original for a mother feeding an infant, like spoonful by spoonful. A couple months before um, Betty passed away, she had this insatiable desire for ice chips. And, and she wanted these things broken up at a certain size, and I'm forever hacking up um, ice cubes, you know, under a towel with a hammer. And, and I would collect these in a little uh, Tupperware container, and it seemed like every hour she wanted more ice cubes, just because her mouth was so dry. And, and so I would, I would take the ice cube chips, and on a spoon I would feed them to her, morsel by morsel. And that would bring her some relief. That's what he's talking about here. He's giving of his, his goods and his time, um, and he's very much involved. And not only that, he's saying that <clears throat> if I surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. We don't really know what uh, picture he had hanging on the back of his mind when he said that, but you might envision a person who rushes into a burning building to rescue someone, or you might think of somebody, um, well, like a martyr being burned at the stake. But it's more than likely that this referred to a, a practice that was rather common in Paul's day, and that is that if there was a person who was enslaved and they were a Christian and determined to be very valuable to the church, that another Christian who was not in slavery could exchange places with them. She could give herself to, uh, to be enslaved. And, and really, at that point... The mark of a branding iron was seared into her hand. Eventually it would scar over, but it would leave a mark there that would say that this is a person who exchanged places and became a slave so that this other person could have freedom to go and serve God and the church. The King James here is, is more accurate. If I give my body to be burned, that's what it says not just if I surrender my body to the flames. So even if their hand has been burned in slavery and they've made this great sacrifice of their, of their possessions, their food, and their person, Paul's saying, even with all that sacrifice, if you did that without incorporating love into that service and sacrifice. 
you gain nothing in terms of rewards in heaven. Hmm. That's pretty heavy. Now, some of you might be thinking at this point and wondering, is that really true? You're saying, well, listen, I thought that sacrifice was the ultimate expression of love. And to some extent, you'd be right there. Because this word that's used here for love is the word agape. And of course, that's the same word that's used in uh, the very familiar John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you know, we said earlier that the greatest need of the world is to be reconciled with God, and that is done through this sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He exchanged places with us because the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die because of our sin. And Jesus, who was sinless, took our place on the cross, and all the sins of all the world, past, present, future, were heaped upon him. And when God looked at that, he couldn't bear to look at that sin, and his wrath fell upon his son on the cross, and his death on the cross, if we believe in that, atones for our sin. It provides a substitute for us. And you say, well, that's sacrifice, isn't it? That Jesus did that, so if we sacrifice of our stuff and our self, then isn't that what love is? There's a lot more to agape than sacrifice. Imagine with me for a moment if Jesus, when he set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to face the cross, if he did it complaining all the way. And he's upset because he's got to do this on his own. Nobody is going to help him. And he's upset with the disciples because they're so thick-headed and because um, they run when, when the danger comes. They don't have the courage. He's uh, there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter demonstrated some courage. He stood up with a sword and lopped off Malchus's ear, the Roman soldier. Instead of taking that fragment of the ear and healing it, Jesus says, well, good for you, Peter. In fact, I'm going to supply 10,000 angels to help you, and you can just lop off some more ears out there and just show these Romans who really is the powerful one here. Or if, when he was being beaten and mocked and spat upon, that he began spitting back at them and cursing them. What if he were on the cross and they were mocking him and he called down curses upon them as well? You'd say, well, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. That doesn't sound very loving. And you would be right. Because um, Isaiah said that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
docile and willing. He opened not his mouth when he was mocked. From the cross, he could even say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You say, well, that's, that's the Jesus I know. Sacrifice by itself, without love and a loving attitude, counts for nothing. And so, we think about you know, what, what this is really saying here. And it's, it's rather, it, it calls me up short, you know, when I think about this. The problem is that up until now, we've been talking about love as an abstract concept. It's saying, okay, without love, my service amounts to nothing, I amount to nothing, and I gain nothing in reward without love. Well, what is this thing called love? And the world has its definition, and it usually involves something that I really like and gives me great pleasure or wonderful feelings. It, it has a lot to do with infatuation, but that's not the kind of love that Paul's writing about here. And so what we really need to do then is look at this definition he gives of love, because love as a word is a very abstract concept. Now he's going to make it concrete by saying this is what love is. And so in verse 4, love is patient. I think I have it on the screen. There it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now Mark went into a lot of uh, definitions and unpacked all of these words here, uh, but I would simply ask you today, when you look at that list, can you resonate with those definitions? Do they characterize you? Is there anything there that um, you would say, I have trouble with? Love is patient. I remember um, in this past year, and uh, particularly toward... Um, uh, after Betty got her cancer, I remember having to drive her all over the city and uh, doctor's appointments. I was in a big rush. I wanted to get her there fast, and I, I hated it when there were other drivers just dawdling along in front of me. And, and I, I just was so angry at them. And, um, you know, when, when there's somebody like that moving so slowly in front of you and you're becoming that impatient, that angry... What you're really saying is that I wish you weren't even here on the face of the earth. Get out of my way. 
That's really what you're saying. So um, uh, one day I was trying to get her there so fast because we're running late that I got a ticket. So lately my life has been far more serene. I don't have things to rush to. I've retired since then from my day job. And uh, I'm not in a hurry anymore. So would would say that, well, well, now you're more patient? No. Because patience and all these other things are tested uh, through. Like, if I cannot be patient when I need to be patient, then I'm really not patient. Now I, it's easy to be patient, right? There's no virtue in it at this point. So these things are all tested in the real crucible of life. And you look at each one of these, kindness. Well, it's easy to be kind when everybody else is kind to me. But when people are, are unkind, like they were to Jesus, can you return kindness for unkindness? That's the real test. Would you say that you're a kind person? As you go through, it doesn't envy when you see anybody else that has uh, uh, more than you, more gifts than you. They're able to serve more effortlessly than you. You become jealous. It doesn't boast. It's not there to exalt oneself. It's not proud. It's humble. It's not looking to make a name for yourself. <clears throat> so all these, you go down the list here, and uh, there's an old saying that people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. How would you rate yourself on all of those? So your assignment is simply to ask yourself the question, am I a loving person? Do I demonstrate that in the thick and thin of life? When life tests me, when conflicts arise in the church and I'm tested here, am I a loving person? Because what is the church's greatest need? Well, it's, it's for this kind of love. And maybe we need to take these verses here and, and underline them in our Bibles or highlight them with neon yellow or circle it, whatever you do in your Bibles to call attention to things. But not only that, a lot of you have these passages memorized. You've heard them at weddings and, you know, all that, and this is in your heart already. So you have to think about it. But most important is then to apply it and say, is this characteristic of me? Because apart from love, all of our service amounts to nothing. It makes me nothing, and it gains us nothing at the judgment seat of Christ. So, what is our church's greatest need? There is a kind of service for Christ in a church where all the love has been squeezed out like the juice from a lemon. There is a kind of 
of praying and going to prayer meetings where it's just a neurotic compulsion to duty. There is a kind of, of leadership that's only self-aggrandizement. There is a kind of service that's just only motivated by guilt. Boy, if I don't do it, it won't get done. Nobody else is helping. I guess I have to do it. And all of those kinds of things demonstrate unloving attitudes, at least. And the Lord knows our hearts when we're thinking these things. It might not be outwardly shown, but he can read us like a book. And if my service for the Lord in whatever capacity I'm gifted is not characterized by love, then it all adds up to a zero. But obviously, if you take the smallest tidbit of, of Bible knowledge and you incorporate it with love and you feed it to someone morsel by morsel who's in need of encouragement or comfort or edification, then it begins to count for something. You take the, the most clumsy ability to organize something, but you try, and you do it with spirit of love, then it begins to count. And, and that's the way it is with all of our service. No matter how poor we may be, at it, if it's incorporated with love, then it counts for something in God's sight. I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for excellence in what we do as a church. We should in all of our aspects. But no matter how excellent these things are, Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. A church can have all these other things. Wonderful, gifted people. But if love is not in it, then it really doesn't matter. But uh, you put the smallest amount of love in there, and the difference will be made. If a church doesn't have love, whatever else it has doesn't really matter. I'd like to pray with you, and then Mark will come up. Father. We thank you for uh, the scriptures. Thank you for this wonderful chapter. And uh, Lord, we pray that now that we've been exposed to these things for the last month, that you would now help us to live it out. Search us, Holy Spirit, and show us where we fall short when it comes to living out this love and help us, Lord, to, to be the kind of uh, servant that you would have us be. We pray that as we do whatever you've given us to do, we would do it with, with love. And that as we do that, people would look at the church and they say, my, how they love one another. That's a place where I'd like to get involved. We pray that this would be uh, something each one of us would think about. And we pray that um, with your spirit's strength, 
we will be able to live this out because we know that these are supernatural things that we're talking about. Nobody can live this life of love unless the Holy Spirit dwells within them and is free to begin to do his work in us. Bless us, O Lord, as we go forth this week and help us to remember these things and to do them as you've taught us in Jesus' name. Amen.